Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. Julia Daly is an author who is now out with her second new novel, The Fifth Daughter of Thorn Ranch. Book number two finds life changing big time for Emma Rosales, heiress of a million acres of the largest estate in the Lone Star State. Emma's job is managing those million acres, but it turns out she discovers folks living on her property. And what the hell has that been like? We're going to talk about this undertaking and what prompted Julia to write The Fifth Daughter of Thorn Ranch. As I mentioned, Julia's debut novel is No Names to Be Given, her women's fiction book. Julia is also the host of a podcast that focuses on fiction written by women during their midlives. So let's meet and get to know author, podcaster, Julia Daly. Welcome and thanks so much for joining me remotely today from Texas. Hey there. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. Well, Julia, what made you think you could write a book or two? (laughs) Well, I was an English major in college. I got my MBA and and thought, you know, I've got to put food on the table. I was a single parent for a long time. So I put aside all of my dreams of writing the great American novel and went to work. I I worked in colleges. I was an adjunct professor for a while. I, I was the public relations director at the Mississippi Department of Education. And so I, I, I did all of that. While I was at one of the colleges, they gave us free classes we could take as part of our compensation package. And I took a writing course and thought, well, this is what I actually went to school to do, so this will be fun. And I wrote a couple of chapters of my first book, No Names to Be Given. And that book was very personal to me because it has a thread of memoir running through it. I was an adopted child from a maternity home in New Orleans, and that book has three young women back in 1966 who arrive at that home to relinquish their babies for adoption. And, you know, back then you had to return home as if nothing transpired. And so that was the first book. And the reason I picked it back up was when we moved to Texas from Mississippi, I found those chapters that I had written in that writing course at the college where I was working. And I thought, well, if not now, when? I call it writing in life's sweetest third. And that's what I've been doing. I've been writing, and then I started the podcast because I would look at all of these awards for under 30 or under 40, but I never saw any for over 50. So I wanted to celebrate all of those authors like me who decided to write in Life's Sweetest Third. So that's how No Names to Be Given was born. Yes, And how is it received? It has been received very well. I have enjoyed most of all hearing from adopted children, adoptive parents, all those in the adoption realm. I've even heard from birth mothers who gave birth at that same hospital where I was relinquished for adoption. So people have reached out to me and have really loved the book. It's received um, 12 awards and it's being shopped around 
for possible streaming or on the big screen and being shopped around in studios in Los Angeles. How much did Roe v. Wade have an impact on your writing this book? Well, you know, women's issues have always been a hot button, and not just in this country, but everywhere. And of course, that makes it even more significant for this time period. A lot of young women have told me that they they had no clue that this even happened. You know, it was called the baby scoop era from about the 30s through the 80s, when if you were unwed and pregnant, you were shipped away to these maternity homes that were all across the United States and in other countries as well. And you had to return home and pretend nothing happened. I mean, women weren't allowed to go to high school if they were pregnant. It was just a totally different time. And these women who reach out to me say, we just never dreamed this was happening right here in our country and not so many years ago. It has been very well received. I'm I'm zooming into book clubs all over the country, and and they really love to discuss these topics, especially as you said during this time when there's so much going on with women's issues in the country. And uh, I think people are learning what happened then, and hopefully we don't continue to make the same mistakes that we that we did at that time. Well, your book was personal because it was about you. And book number two, The Fifth Daughter of Thorn Ranch, is a real departure based on what book number one was like. So talk to me about how you gave birth to this second book. When we moved to Texas, I became enamored with these large family ranches that are now being divided up and turned into subdivisions. And I just love the history. We moved to a small town in the hill country that was settled by the Germans back in the 1800s. And I got to know people who had been on these same ranches for five generations. And I was just so excited to learn about that in the history. But we were actually traveling in in Colorado. I thought at the time, I had been told all my life I was Native American, and so I didn't know that we had these ruins that we have in Colorado at Mesa Verde National Park. And it looked like just a huge mountain of condos had been built there. And it was by this ancient people. And they said they didn't know what happened to them, whether they left because of drought, because of warfare, because of sickness. They don't know why they left that area. And I thought, well, they might have come to Texas. So I became excited about the idea of these ancient people traveling to Texas and living on this property. And a young woman, an heiress to the largest ranch in Texas, which is a million acres, stumbles upon this ancient people living on her property. And that was my inspiration, was seeing those ruins and then thinking about if you own 
owned a million acres. People can't even imagine what a million acres looks like, but it's larger than New York and LA combined. And uh, people could be living on your property and you wouldn't even know it, especially if the terrain was, you know, very rugged. And um, so that was my inspiration for that book. And that she was the fifth daughter of Thorn Ranch. How did that play into the fact that she was now going to manage these millions of acres? She was very apprehensive. She had watched all the women, all of these heiresses in her family were very strong women who ran these ranches. It was kind of a departure from what normally happens on a lot of these ranches, and that's that they are led by um, men. And this is a departure saying that all of these women from the first generation when Spanish land grants were given to these people, that they endured warfare on their property. They endured, you know, being pioneers and and the the excruciating circumstances they found themselves in in this rugged country. And yet these women survived and kept this land intact. And she was worried about being able to be the fifth generation and whether or not she would just rather be a veterinarian. She loved animals. Veterinarian in a small town and not have to deal with the pressures of being the fifth generation. And I think a lot of families here feel that way. You know, our young people have gotten away from wanting to to work these ranches because it is such difficult work. They'd rather be in the cities or finding something more creative to do. But that's why I think it's so important that we try to keep these large ranches together because it's such beautiful property and it, it just makes such a difference in our environment. Well, obviously, this was very personal to you. What was that like growing up in a family where you were not their biological child? Our family really believes in adoption. I, of course, was adopted as an infant. One of my daughters adopted four older children, and they're thriving in her home. So I think it's a very personal and courageous decision, you know, when you choose to rear another's child as your own. But... But my father was a very special man, and he accepted me just like the children who would come later. They were told that they would never be able to have children. And you actually, back then, had to prove that, had to have a letter that said that you were infertile and would never be able to have children to be able to adopt. There were so many rules and so many regulations back then to adopt. And people would ask him, which one of your children is adopted? And he would say, you know, I don't remember. Or, you know, when you start feeding them, wow. they all look alike. You know, he would make such, you know, sweet remarks right. like that. And I would think as a child, wonder if I'm really his biological child. He made me feel that way. So he was a very special adoptive parent. So... Adoption, while you were growing up, was pretty ubiquitous in your neck of the woods. I was the only adopted child in my small town in Mississippi, and 
people would walk up to my mother and say, I want to see that adopted child. Like they thought I would have horns coming out of my head. <laughs> right, so right. It was very unusual. You know, people were still believing that, that you should pass along your genes and keep that bloodline pure and all this kind of thing. And, and so it was very unusual for them. And I, I look back and think they were so young and thought they would never have children and they wanted a family. And so they adopted me and the old adoption syndrome happened. 19 months later, my brother was born and 10 years later, my sister. So they, they actually had two birth children and one adopted child in our family. And how were you received by those siblings? Well, they don't ever remember a time when I wasn't there. And I actually told them that I was the chosen child and they were accidents. (laughs) So I I kind (laughs) of lorded that over them, you know, that it took a lot of of, uh, paperwork and and a lot of planning to get me. So they, they sometimes would say, I think daddy and mother love you more than us. And I would say, well, of course they do. (laughs) So I really, truly believed I was a chosen child. (laughs) So talk to me about Emma Rosales, your lead character in this book about this heiress having to manage the millions of acres. Who Who was living on the property? How did she come to find all this out? She was a very independent young woman and went to college um, here in Texas and came back home and she was expected to run this this enormous operation after her mother, Josie, passed it on to her. And she loved to go and camp out on the property and she would camp out on the property for days. Her parents went to Europe for a summer vacation to escape the Texas heat And she went out on her horse into the huge, vast ranch to camp. And it became a terrible thunderstorm. And she tried to find a place to get out of the, the rain. And there were small caves there. And she crawled into one. And it looked like the cave was going to fill up from a dry creek and that she was in danger. And so she tried to to go farther into the cave. And when she did, she saw light and she climbed up and she looked out into the meadow on a plateau and she saw all of these people milling around. And she could tell that they were not visitors. They were not campers. They actually lived there. So that's how she stumbled upon this ancient people. They were completely un contacted tribe, and they live there on the property undetected. Wow. And how how have both books been received? I've had advanced readers who just think it's a great adventure story. And one said that she would like to see it as the next Yellowstone, only in Spanish. So I think a lot of people are really, really excited to have this next generation uh, will start with the fifth generation, present day, and then we can go back to the first generation with the land grants and the first Rosales woman who owned all of this property. So there's a, a way to have prequels and a series out of this story because it is a magnificent story and people seem to really gravitate to it. And no names 
as I said, I've, I've just had the best time hearing from people who are in the adoption family who are either adopted themselves or, or have adopted children or have been bir- those birth mothers who gave up their children for adoption. And they really tell me that I got the story correct as far as those maternity homes. You know, we still have 400 maternity homes in the U.S., but they're more able to help women be able to keep their babies and to try to find jobs and and child care. So it's not the same as it was back in the 30s, 40s, 50s. I get that. I get that. Talk to me about the reason for the birth of your podcast. I have truly thought that I would just have a blog on my website and try to promote my books. But the more I went to writing conferences and writing retreats and and saw other women and men who were writing in their retirement years and they were trying to get publicity for their work. And it's more difficult the older you get to try to get uh, a light shined on your work. Um, as you do for for so many creatives. And I just thought, well, you know, I can do this. So I did. I started a podcast called Authors Over 50, and it's to celebrate all of those writers who published their first book after the age of 50. And it has been so, I've just been overwhelmed with how many people have come out of the woodwork Oh, that's great. So you're you're far from being alone. No, I'm, I'm not. I mean, I have just interviewed doctors and attorneys and MBAs and just such fascinating people who decided they wanted to write a book after their retirement. So it's been a lot of fun. Would you like to see your books, these two books made into films? I can see my characters on the big screen. I I write with it so visual in my mind that I can see what they're wearing, what they're eating, what the smells are, what the house looks like. So I think both of these books would be great stories on the big screen or the small screen. You know, there's so many streaming services now, they are just gobbling up material. So I think they would be able to take these stories and really make some fascinating shows from them. So what do you have up your sleeve now, Julia? I'm going to continue the podcast. Uh, we're booked out through November now, and I'm, I'm thinking about the third book. I've got to get something in my mind to, to determine, you know, if I can come up with another great story. And I think I want to do this as a legacy for my family, for my grandchildren. I have a granddaughter who had to read a a book and report on it for school this year. And she said, and I was the only one in my school who had a grandmother who wrote a book. So she read my book and and reported on it. So I think any time we can leave a legacy for our children and grandchildren is, is worth pursuing. Oh, for sure, especially when we have the skills to do that. Well, Julia, it's been really interesting meeting and getting to know you. And the fact is that you've got a lot of uh, great ideas up your sleeve. 
Well, thank you so much, Sandy. I, I appreciate how you really are shining a light on all these creative women and, and the listeners may not have been introduced to them. So it's been so great to talk to you today. Well, it's also very heartening to know that there are women of a certain age who are out there and who have plenty to say and are writing books and are getting the support. That's really, that's, that must be very heartening to you, Julia. Well, thank you. I, I do want them to be celebrated because I've interviewed people in their 70s, 80s, and 90s, and they're all creating beautiful work. I think writing is like swimming. I think we can do it the rest of our lives. And are these women or men or both? They're both. They're both. Well, Julia, keep us in your loop. When you've got a new book coming out, let us know. We'll talk about it. It was really lovely to meet and get to know you. Thank you so much. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein.